Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So on page 1134, the reading is Romans 8, verses 1 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus... The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin... Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Whenever I've uh, visited any of the great cities of the world, I I love going on uh, the river cruise and um, having a, 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 a... are the great landmarks of the city pointed out to me by a tour guide. Uh, so um, a year last September, I took Caroline to uh, Paris and we're on the Seine and the guide says ahead of you is the Eiffel Tower and on your right is Notre Dame and look to your left and you'll see the Louvre. Or if we're going in London, I love going along the Thames, passing under the Tower Bridge and floating by the Houses of Parliament and St Paul's Cathedral and the Tower of London. I love it. Seeing all those wonderful landmarks in one great trip. But of course, on the river cruise, I haven't seen any of them in detail. 
To really appreciate them, you have to go back and visit them individually. Now, Romans 8 is one of those great chapters of the Bible. It is like going through, um, you know, so, so many glorious things. Um, it has so many amazing sights to see. And I reckon trying to look at Romans chapter 8 in one 25-minute sermon is a bit like going on a city river cruise. So tonight, as we pass through Romans 8, we're going to try, try and do the whole of the chapter. It's just, who put this series together? How stupid was that? We're going to go through the whole chapter, and uh, all I'll be able to do is say, on your right, and on, if you look ahead... Uh, I'll point out the landmarks, but if you really want to appreciate it, then you'll have to go back and individually visit each one. So I'm going to pray now that somehow we'll get through this chapter and it will make some sense. Let me pray for us now. Father, thank you uh, very much for uh, your book of uh, Romans. Uh, We thank you that we have been learning many wonderful things. And as we come to this remarkable chapter where uh, so many people have preached many, many, many sermons on it, Uh, We pray as we try to do it in one hit uh, that it would be uh, something that does warm our hearts and uh, thrill us, even if we only just pass by some of the landmarks. Uh, Please do that work in us that only you can do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you like these things, you might like to dig out uh, one of the other things that was tucked into your bundle, a little uh, uh, sermon outline, so you can see where we're going. You'll see from the introduction that... uh, I want to persuade you about Christian assurance. Christian assurance is crucial if anyone is going to live a really effective life for Jesus Christ. Now, by Christian assurance, I mean having the certainty that we are acceptable to God and the certain guarantee that we will spend all eternity eternity with him. That certainty, do you have it? If we are not sure of that, we will never be sold out for Jesus Christ in this life. We'll always keep a little bit back. We'll not put all our eggs into that one basket. We'll never be sold out for Jesus, just in case it's not true. That would be a bit of a disaster, wouldn't it, if I've given my whole life to Jesus, and then when it comes to the end of the day, I'm not raised to to eternal life. So if I'm not sure of that, I'm never going to really be sold out for Jesus, do you see? Now, Christian assurance is crucial, and I I think it is, there's probably many issues, I think it is one of the big issues of Romans chapter 8. Back in September, when we began looking through Romans, we turned to chapter 15, there's no need to do it now, but we saw there the purpose of the letter to to the Romans. If you weren't here, I explained this on a little video on the Fullwood Church website, so if you want to visit that, uh, you can have another little look. Chapter 15 tells us that Paul was writing this particular letter to the church in Rome to persuade people to support his church planting initiative that he was going to do in Spain. So on his way to Spain, he planned to stop in on Rome and the Christians there, and he wanted from them money, people, and prayer. He wanted them to dig deep in their pockets and into their wallets and to find to fund his church planting work in Spain. He wanted others to, listen to this, leave Rome and go with him to Spain for however long it took to plant churches there. That's a long way to leave and to go somewhere else. And he wanted them all to pray. And here's the thing for this evening. You'll not give your money sacrificially or move away from your home to go church planting or do anything that will cost you significant inconvenience unless you have complete Christian assurance. Why would I want to do all those things 
if it might not be true or if I can't be sure of going to heaven. I'm going to want to have as much much fun as I can here, aren't I, rather than sacrifice anything. Do you see the point? Now, Romans chapter 8 should give us that assurance. Indeed, we should have started to have it from Romans chapter 5 because in many ways, chapter 8 is the culmination of the argument that began in chapter 5. Now, we will particularly be seeking after assurance in view of all that we saw last week in Romans chapter 7. And that might well have shaken our assurance before God. Do you remember it? In chapter 7, the Apostle Paul explained that while God's law is good, it is powerless unless it enables us, uh, because it, it, doesn't, it, it can't enable us to live as we should. Because there is a more powerful force at work in us, namely our sinful nature. And so do you remember, do you, did you, I felt it, I wonder if you felt it, the pain and the struggle of chapter 7. Let me just remind you, chapter 7, verse 15. Do you remember this? I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And verse 18, just a few verses down. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. I can think of times in my life when I've, I've had such a struggle with sin that I've wondered if there was any hope for me. Times when I've failed to live as I should that I've wondered if I can really be one of God's people. Do you, do you experience that? That's what's going on, isn't it? And in those times, it's only when I remember the gospel of grace and run to Jesus Christ that I find any peace. Because when I do run to Christ, I hear chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And that's our first point on the handout. Assurance through the past death of Christ, verses 1 to 4. There is, it's great, isn't it? Look at it again, verse 1. There is no condemnation for the Christian. Because in Christ, this is everything we've seen already in the book of Romans, my standing before God is not dependent upon my performance but on Christ's perfect life and perfect death. Look at verse two. Why is there no condemnation? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in me, that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Now, the beginning of verse three there is exactly what we saw last week, the powerlessness of the law because of the sinful nature. But Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. See verse three, he came in the likeness of sinful man. He he looked just like us, but he was without sin. And he lived the law perfectly. He did what we couldn't do. And therefore he was able to be, do you see it halfway through verse three, a sin offering. You see, God's law demands that when God's law is broken, someone must die. Sin is that serious. Someone must die. And the punishment for breaking the law is the death penalty. So as I look at myself and I know that I've broken God's law, when I was looking through Romans chapter 7 and the law, when I know I've broken God's law repeatedly, I know that I deserve the death penalty. I am a serial offender. Again and again, over and over, I rebel against God by breaking his law. And guilty sinner that I am, I am like a man on death row. I am condemned. But here's the thing. God has made provision in his law for sinners like me and like you. 
In his law, in the sacrificial system, there is provision for guilty sinners to have their guilt dealt with by another. Through the sacrifice of a perfect unblemished lamb, my sin can be atoned for. But it has to be a perfect sacrifice. For you see, it would be no sacrifice at all if I took to the temple a scraggy old sheep that was on its last legs and was about to peg out anyway. That's no sacrifice, is it? No, it had to be an unblemished, perfect lamb. And then what happens when Jesus bursts on the scene? John says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's verse three. God sent his son into the world to be a sin offering. So here's the thing. I'm on death row and I deserve to be there. My crime, my sin is so heinous and deserving of death. But amazingly, Jesus dies in my place. He goes to the electric chair. He takes the lethal injection instead of me. And that's why there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The law has been kept both by Jesus living the law and by him being the perfect sacrifice offered in my place. And because in this part of the argument we're in the category of the law, verse one is not just telling me that I I won't be condemned, but it is telling me that I can't be condemned if I'm in Christ. This is really important. Legally, if God were to punish me when Jesus has taken my punishment then the almighty creator of the whole universe would not be just. He would be demanding double payment for sin and God can't do that. God can't break the law. So do you see, Christian, hear it again, verse one, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus and there can't be. Not just that there won't be, there can't be. Isn't that brilliant? And we need to hear it because we feel condemned when we fail to keep God's law. When we fail again and we hear that accusing voice saying, and you call yourself a Christian. Oh, you may have heard uh, somebody say it from outside, but I hear the whisper in my head. And you call yourself a Christian. And you call yourself a Christian pastor. And you're supposed to be the leader of that church. And do you hear that voice? Then we need to hear verse one, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Isn't it glorious? That's the gospel and that should give me great assurance. Now that assurance comes when I know that, end of verse one, I am in Christ Jesus, not just blanket, it's for those in Christ Jesus. And end of verse four, if I am one who does not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit, then I can know these things to be true. And so the verses that follow are to tell me what it means to live, that phrase, end of verse four, according to the spirit. And so give me real assurance. So do you see, we've had from the assurance through the past death of Christ, that's what we've just seen in verses one to four. Now we have assurance through the present experience of the spirit. So do you see how that works? He says, you've got to be sure that you are one of these people, end of verse four, who does not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. And now he's going to show us what it means to live according to the spirit, you see, so that we've got assurance that we are those people. So we're on our second point. Now, as I read through verses five to eight, listen in and pick out the dominant thought. It's not complex at all. Listen, there's lots of things that are quite complicated, but this is not complex at all. Listen to the the dominant thought as I read through verses five to eight. You'll see it very clearly. 
Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit, submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Now, do you hear it? It's the dominant thought is where your mind is set. Your mindset. It's what you daydream about. You know, when you drift off in those moments, maybe it's happening right now. Come back. It's what gets your heart racing. It's your heart's desire. Before we are in Christ, before the Holy Spirit lives in us, when we live according to the sinful nature, our mind is set on our own desires. That's what it says at the end of verse, uh, in the first part of verse 5. So as a 20-year-old, before I became a Christian, my mind was set on my career and my promotions, hoping I'd get some, and making money and buying a house and girls and all that sort of stuff. My mind was basically set on doing the things that I believe would make me happy, bring me fulfilment. It was all about my pleasure. I was set on, you know, how can I, I've got all my life sort of panning out ahead of me. How can I arrange it so that everything's going to be the best it can be for me? That's what my mind was set on. But when the Holy Spirit is working in us, we find our mind is set on what the Spirit desires, end of verse 5. It was the most remarkable thing. After I turned to Christ, I didn't become perfect. I'm still not perfect, far from that. But after I turned to Christ, I really did want to do what God wanted me to do. I don't mean by that that I just wanted to be moral. But I wanted to be about the things that God was about, so much so that the whole direction of my life began to change. I don't mean by that I became a Christian pastor. That's not the point at all. I just started to think differently about life. Do you know that, that thought? See, the point is this. The Holy Spirit changes what your mind is set on, and that then changes the way you live. Now, I love looking at people in this congregation who've been Christians for many years, and I see this very thing in them. You do it. Look at people who've had their minds set on the things of God for many years. They're not perfect people. They wouldn't tell you that they are. They know they're not. But you can see where their mind is set by what they say and how they live. You talk to them for a little while, you, you hear what makes them tick, what motivates them. You can just see it in the way they're living. They're not making a big deal about it. It's just that's what's happened over the years. I think of some who've made significant choices and costly choices about where they live, for example. Some have chosen to live in a smaller house so they're not bound by the need to earn more and more money so that they can work fewer days to free themselves up for gospel ministry. Why is that? Because their mindset somewhere else, you see. Others have chosen to live in a smaller house to be able to give more money away to see the gospel proclaimed. Just what they want to do. Nobody's forced them to do it. They just want to do that. Because their mind's not all about the property, getting a bigger house. Others have moved home and lived in areas that are less desirable to go to churches where they can be more useful for the gospel. That's really significant, isn't it? Their mindset. And I chose those examples because that's the point of this book, you see. Paul writes this book, the book of Romans, to get people in Rome to support his church planting in Spain by giving him money or going with him to Spain and praying for him. Pounds people and prayer. All advancing gospel ministry needs those things. And when we have our minds changed about what's really important, then we start to 
Go down that route. Give those things. Give ourselves. Before I became a Christian, I wouldn't dream of giving money to support gospel ministry. I might give money to other things. I wouldn't give it to gospel ministry. And I certainly wouldn't dream of making personal sacrifices in where I lived and what job I would do to help further the spread of the gospel. And I never prayed. When the Holy Spirit works in us, he changes our mindset and that changes the way we live. Do you see how that works? Now, we're going to see exactly that point when we come to chapter 12. Um, Again, there's no need to turn to it. I put it on the bottom of the handout. Chapter 12, verse 2 says this, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, our lives are changed by our minds being renewed. That's what we're seeing in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 8. The Holy Spirit changes my mindset. He renews my mind and changes my whole outlook on life, and that changes the way I live. Which is why, as an aside, but I do think it's an important aside, why Holy Spirit people are Bible people. Because the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible, And we go to the Bible to have our minds renewed by the Spirit. Which is why I think it's always a bit odd when people try to drive a wedge between Holy Spirit and Bible. Just odd. But people do that. So where have we got to so far? In Christ there is no condemnation. How do we know we're in Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit lives in us and he gives us a different mindset. And then Paul says, and oh, All Christians do have the Holy Spirit living in them. Look at verse nine, I love this. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now that is very clear, end of verse nine. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. There is no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Now again, that is an issue that is so misunderstood today that I would love to spend longer on it, but there's no time because we're we're just floating past on the river, you see, and I'm just pointing it out to you, so you'll have to go back and look at it later. But as we float by, let me urge you to revisit verse nine because it will rescue you from much confusion that is in the church at large. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, you do have the Holy Spirit, you see? Very important. Anyway, that as it may be, the larger point Paul is making is this. The Holy Spirit does live in all real believers. And verse 10, the Holy Spirit makes us spiritually alive, which is proof that we will be raised from the dead. Because, verse 11, the same Spirit who lives in us raised Jesus from the dead. And so do you see the logic? If the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, we can be sure if the Holy Spirit is living in us, he'll raise us from the dead too. Do you see the point? It's about Christian assurance. The present experience of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the assurance of life beyond the grave. Which is why Paul writes, verse 12, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die, you won't have everlasting life. But if the Spirit puts to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now again, see how it works. I'm trying to just show you how the, how, the, how, the, how the verses build up. If the Holy Spirit is living in you and you know he's living in you because your mindset changes and that begins to transform the way you live, if that has happened, then, verse 12, you have an obligation to live according to the Spirit and as you do live according to the Holy Spirit, then you can be sure you are sons of God. Assurance. 
Here's why the Christian who lives the faithful, obedient Christian living are the ones who have assurance that they are God's children. And conversely, why people who call themselves Christian but don't live a consistent Christian life don't have assurance. So I think of a man I know, he's not part of this church. I I doubt that really any of you know him, so I can talk about it, but I'm not going to give anything away. Even though he knows the gospel well, he has significantly failed to live the Christian life a consistent Christian life, and now he has no assurance that he's a real Christian. Of course he doesn't. He's not been living like a Christian. His mind has been set on other things. He's not taken seriously the obligation to live according to the Spirit. Of course he doesn't have any assurance that he's a Christian. But, verse 14, when we are led by the Spirit, we have assurance that we are sons of God. And as I say that, I can hear some people saying, hang on a minute, I'm a girl. How can I be a son? That's a bit sexist, isn't it? And I'll say to that, the Bible tells me I'm part of the bride of Christ and I'm a bloke. I'm a bloke and I'm a bride, so you can be a son if you're a girl. It's not sexist at all. It's telling us something wonderful. Being a son means that we will inherit everything the father gives to his son, the Lord Jesus. Look down to verse 7. We are co-heirs with Christ. Being a son is about inheritance, do you see? And isn't that spectacular? We are co-heirs with Christ. We inherit everything that Jesus inherits. Isn't that remarkable? And again, doesn't that give you assurance? Knowing that, knowing that I'm going to inherit everything that the Son of God inherits, everything that Jesus inherits, I'm going to be a co-heir with him. It's not even 50-50. It's not like he says, I'll have 50. No, it's 100%, 100%. I get all that he gets. Now, knowing that, I could be sold out for Christ now because whatever I give away now, I'm going to inherit far more in eternity. Do you see? It's all about assurance. Isn't that brilliant? You can be sold out for Christ when you know this. Well, the first thing then, assurance through the past death of Christ. The second thing, assurance through the present experience of the Spirit. And the third thing, assurance through the sufferings of this present age that God will bring me to glory in the future. Not quite as snappy, that title. But it needed to be right, you see, because I couldn't just do snappy out to get it right. This is verses 18 to 30. Being sons of God means following in the footsteps of the Son, the Lord Jesus. And end of verse 17, do you see it there? He suffered first and only then went to glory. So the Christian life is going to follow the same pattern. It is suffering first now and glory later. And that's what verses 18 to 30 are all about. See the structure of this passage. End of verse 17, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And then look to the section from verse 18 to verse 30. It begins, verse 18, with sufferings. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that we revealed. And the section ends uh, with uh, glory, verse 30. Uh, And those he justified, he also glorified so verses 18 to 30 are about suffering now leading to the glorious life of everlasting life with Jesus Christ in eternity that's what glory is now these verses need a whole sermon on their own at least but we don't have time we're just sailing past you see so I'll try and sum them up in a couple of sentences verses 18 to 27 tell us that we suffer now because the whole created order has been, in the words of verse 20, 
subjected to frustration by God. It's basically saying we, we live in a fallen world. It is a creaking, groaning world. Indeed, everybody in this section is groaning. Verse 22, the creation itself is groaning. We see that in the immense suffering following Typhoon Haiyan. Groaning, doesn't it? It make your heart bleed when you see that. And verse 23, we groan, life is tough. Just this week I've spent time with two families who've been bereaved and the pain is immense. And then even the Holy Spirit groans, end of verse 26. Now what is all this groaning about? It is a longing for God to redeem his people and to usher in the new creation. Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And verse 23 Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, don't you feel that? That's how I feel sometimes. Maybe it's just I'm getting older. Don't you feel it sometimes? When we see how desperate this world is, when we watch the news and see people suffering, or, or when we go through our own hard times personally, we long for God to redeem us and to bring us to the new heavens and the new earth. Come, Lord Jesus. Do what you've said you're going to do. Wrap up the world as we know it. Please, it's awful as it is. Do you have that longing? That's what this section's talking about. Meanwhile, even through our present sufferings, what we read, verse 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, that's a very well-known verse. It's, all, it's often on posters, isn't it? You sort of put them on the back door of the loo. So while you're sitting on the toilet, you can read. Anyway, you know. No, I mean, that's what I do. I don't want you to. And sorry, I hadn't got that in my notes. Stick to the notes. But let me tell you, verse 28 is very much misunderstood. It doesn't mean that everything works out to make life easy and good and comfortable. It doesn't mean that at all. No, this is saying that God is using everything, even the suffering in this world, to do two things. First, to make me more like Jesus. And second, to bring me to glory. And where do I get those things from? Verses 29 and 30. Verse 29. For, this is the link word from 28 to 29. For, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. The reason he makes us Christians is to become more and more like Jesus. And so he's using, verse 28, even the most difficult things in life to make us more like Jesus Christ. We groan and and, and we hate this world that we live in sometimes. God doesn't like what he sees either, but remarkably he's going to use those things to make us more like Christ. That's one thing he's going to do. And the second thing he does in all this is guarantees that we will come to glory End of verse 30. Verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So certain, he can put it in the past tense. So in a, in a, in a, in a sentence, God is so committed to doing those two things, making me more like Christ and glorifying me, that he will work to transform me through those things that make me sad and those things that make me glad and those things that I just don't understand. He will use them all. One of the uh, privileges of this job is that I sit with people through some of the most painful times of life 
Now, while that is hard, it is also amazing when months later those same people tell me that through their sufferings, God has changed them to be more like Jesus and to know God better. And it is even more amazing when sometimes people say that even through what they went through, such very hard times, they are in a way pleased that they went through those times. Now, I'm not saying this glibly. I'm not saying, I'm telling you what people say to me. And they say, I'm pleased I've gone through this most horrendous time because I'd have never been changed to be the person that I ought to be had I not gone through this most significant time of suffering. It is remarkable when people say that. I don't know that I'd ever be um, godly enough to say that. Now look, the big point is this. God transforms me as I walk through this tottering, creaking world and all the events of this life. He transforms me through all the suffering I face in this world. He transforms me and makes me more like Jesus and he will bring me to glory through it. Now again, doesn't that give you assurance? Whatever this world throws at me, God is using it for his good purposes and not least of all to bring me to glory. Doesn't that give you Christian assurance? Particularly those of you who are going through a hard time at the moment. And so as Paul winds up, begins to wind up this majestic chapter, not that he wrote it as a chapter, but as he begins to wind up this majestic end to his argument, he asks, verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this? And then he asks four questions, all that give us assurance. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul asks, is there anything that can defeat us? When you look around at the world and all the terrible things that can come upon us, you might say, oh yeah, there is actually, I feel there's all sorts of things that can, that can come upon me. But what does Paul say there? He says, no. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, no one can. And we know God is for us because, verse 32, he gave his son for us. So Christian, be assured. It's where we started back in Romans chapter five. When you're not sure if God loves you, look at the cross. Then Paul asks, verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Paul asks, is there any barrister who can effectively make a charge stick against me, you know, in the court of law? Now that's where we ended chapter seven. We know we're guilty. But end of verse 33, it is God who justifies and he has declared us not guilty. We are right with him. So Christian, be assured. Next, Paul asks, verse 34, who is he that condemns? Are we going to be left by God on death row as condemned sinners? See, he's the one who condemns God. That's what we've been seeing all the way through Romans. Is that what's going to happen? No, verse 34. Christ Jesus died for us. More than that, he was raised to life and he sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. He's praying for us. Jesus' death and his resurrection, his ascension, means there's no guilt in life and no fear in death. Christian, be assured. And so lastly, Paul asks, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is there anyone or any situation that can effectively separate us from God's love? And then Paul lists all the possibilities. Do you see it there in verse 35? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He's saying, can any person or situation or natural disaster or global catastrophe or persecution separate us from God's love? 
Shall global warming or global terrorism or global recession separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, no. In all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing, nothing in all creation that can separate us from God's love. So Christian, be assured. It has been said before, but it bears repeating. This chapter begins with the words, no condemnation, and it ends with the promise, no separation. That is momentous good news of the gospel. And when you and I have that assurance, that should give us all we need to be sold out to live lives that are wholly devoted to our God. I can give it all to him. I can put all my eggs in that basket because eternity is certain. Nothing can take it away from me. No accusation's going to stop it. I'm always going to be his. He's got hold of me, even through the rubbish that this world sends. He's even going to use that for good. Knowing that I'm totally secure in Christ, I can be totally sold out for him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you very much for these remarkable words. Um, So much more in this chapter we've not even looked at, but we thank you for what we've seen. And we do pray for every uh, real Christian believer here uh, that they would be gaining assurance, having it, so that we can be living wholehearted lives for you. For those who are uh, unsure, we pray if they should be sure, you'd you'd help them to be sure tonight. Uh, For those who are are unsure and are not yet Christians, please help them to turn to you tonight. And we pray that all of us would perhaps walk out of this building with the deep assurance of your love in the Lord Jesus Christ, with the deep assurance that that will never change and nothing can change it, and that that deep assurance and the conviction of that would so grow in us that we would be a people who can transform the world as we live lives completely sold out for Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.